at the moment here at Church at Five. If you've been with us since the beginning of Church at Five last October, this is our fourth series, I think. We had Galatians, Judges, and then uh, then uh, the resurrection according to John, and now we're in a series of seven Psalms. And I was thinking about that that series title. It'd be it'd be funny if I had a lisp when saying a series of seven Psalms. There's a lot of S's in there to trip the tongue over. But I don't have a lisp. But if you do, it'd be be funny to to say that a couple of times. But anyway, um, just a a real S title there. But last week we began with an introduction to the Psalms. Um, Brandon gave us that introduction before he flew off to Texas. And then he gave us a brief run through the 23rd Psalm, uh, which is probably the most famous Psalm, at least in our day, at least in the, in the modern times. Uh, the 23rd Psalm the, Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, probably the Psalm that m- more people have heard of, that's been printed on more um, coffee mugs and t-shirts than any other Psalm. And Brandon mentioned uh, an idea last week, he, or he, not an idea, he spoke about something called memorization, scripture memorization, that it's really a great thing to memorize scripture. That, um, that's actually a lesson we learned from another psalm, Psalm 119, uh, where the psalmist writes, I have hidden my wor- your word in my heart that I might not sin. So I've, put, I've, I've memorized your word, it's in my heart, it's in the center of my being, so that whenever I might be tempted to sin, I think about your word that's stored up there. And so he, he suggested that we could kind of do a, a psalm memorization here at Church at Five. So let me ask the question, did anyone memorize Psalm 1 this last week? So that was a, that was a big takeaway from last, last week then, big takeaway. <laughs> All right, well, there you go. I can only encourage you to memorize Psalm 1 again for next week. Yeah. But as Brandon uh, mentioned, there are different types of psalms, lots of different psalms, uh, all collected into five uh, books of psalms. There's psalms of coronation, so psalms that were written for when the king of Israel was being crowned king, messianic psalms about the coming Messiah, uh, the, the Jewish, the, the Israelite Messiah, pilgrimage psalms that were written to be sung or recited on the way up to Jerusalem, Jerusalem of course lying on a hill by the people of God as they approached uh, Jerusalem for the the yearly festivals, also imprecatory psalms, it's a bit of a long word, Um, if you're not familiar with it, those are the psalms where um, for example David asked that the Lord would, um, would smash or would defeat or would destroy his enemies. There are liturgical psalms that were made to be used in a worship service by the, the gathered people of God. Personal psalms. We had a personal psalm last week where David um, expresses his own relationship to the Lord as his, as his Lord, as his shepherd um, in, in Psalm 23 and psalms of praise. And this evening we'll be in Psalm 145, which is a psalm of praise. And probably the, one of the most famous psalms of praise. And I think as we read through Psalm 145, you'll recognize from the text some of the lines have been co-opted into modern uh, worship songs. And you'll be like, oh, that's where they got that line from. So let's read this psalm together. Um, open up your Bibles, uh, if you have them, to Psalm 145, the sixth last psalm. And we'll read it through together. And I would encourage you to bring your Bible. I know it can be a hassle in summer, especially if you've been out all day, but it is a good thing to have your own Bible there and be able to take notes as the Lord leads you in the service. Psalm 145, a psalm of praise of David. I will exalt you, my God, the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. One generation commends your works to another. They tell of your mighty acts. They speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty. And I will meditate on your wonderful works. They tell of the power of your awesome works. And I will proclaim your great deeds. They celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all that he has made. All your works praise you, Lord. Your faithful people extol you. They tell of the glory of your kingdom and speak of your might, so that all people may know of your mighty acts and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. 
Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures through all generations. The Lord is trustworthy in all he promises and faithful in all he does. The Lord upholds all who fall and lifts up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and faithful in all he does. He is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. The Lord fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cry and saves them. The Lord watches over all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak in praise of the Lord. Let every creature praise his holy name forever and ever. We just pray to begin this message. Our Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for this Psalm 145, for the great, um, mighty and strong psalm of praise that it is. And I pray that you would speak to us this evening through this psalm. Um, really that you, through your Holy Spirit you would write this kind of psalm, this, praise of, this psalm of praise, into our hearts as a, as a rhythm by which we live our lives, as a rhythm by which we think our thoughts and, uh, and speak of you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to go through the psalm um, just in, in its, it's got about three or four sections. We want to look at each of those sections to say what, that, uh, what they have to say to us. And as I say that, I think that sounds almost clinical. We're going to take this beautiful song of praise and then kind of divide it up into sections and kind of analyze uh, the sections. But we are going to do that a little bit. But that sounds clinical because this is not a, 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 just a, a, a section of prose text of Scripture, but this is a psalm. It's a spiritual song. It's a, it's a poem that's been written uh, according, to, um, according to an art, according to a, a craft, the craft of Hebrew poetry. So on that note, I want to really draw out, here is an introduction, if you like, um, having, we having heard the psalm now being read, let me draw out two points to you that really need to be clear to us as we go through uh, the psalms. And the first point is um, the place of beauty, the place of beauty or art in Christianity, in Christian faith. What, what is the place of beauty? What is the place of art in Christian faith? This, this text that we've just read is not a prose text. It's not a, a dry history describing uh, events. It's rather a, a poem, a song of praise to the Lord. It's designed to be beautiful. It's designed to be art. So what's the place of art in Christianity or beauty in Christianity? Do the Psalms have anything uh, to tell us? And I think, and I, th- I hope you'll agree, and I think you'll already agree that yes, they do. And certainly if we think about ourselves as human beings, if you think about your own life or your own, your own mind, your own thoughts, that you'll recognize that as human beings, we're drawn towards things like beauty and goodness and truth. There's, those are the things where we find deep satisfaction. If you, if you go, for example, um, perhaps a poor example on social media, people generally tend to, find, to post pictures of sunsets and beaches. Less so of just, take, let's take a picture of the floor, post that. Because they recognize in the sunset or the beach that that's something of great beauty. That when we see that picture, there's something in our hearts that speaks to us, that we enjoy, that we find great satisfaction in that. And in, in, induces in many of us also great longing. And we see this throughout history. If we look back uh, in our own civilization, in our own culture, we'll see that throughout history, there have been gifted men and women, masters of the arts, who have been able to create fantastic works of art, approaching um, great beauty in sculpture, in painting, in music. We think through to the, 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 the sculptures of ancient Greece, or the, the poems of ancient Rome. Perhaps we've all read a poem of ancient Rome recently in Latin. No, maybe we think of the poems of Schiller or Goethe if we're in Germany, but we're not we're in Church of Five. We'd have English poems, Shakespeare perhaps. And why, why is that, that we're drawn towards truth and beauty and goodness? And I think ultimately it's because, because earthly beauty, earthly goodness and earthly truth are a reflection of, sometimes brightly, sometimes more dimly, 
ultimate beauty, goodness and truth of the Holy Trinity of God himself. As uh, Augustine uh, said, Augustine, I should say, an uh, early church father, lived around 350 AD, he said, he said in a prayer to God, writing his own memoir, he said in a prayer to God, you God, you created us human beings for yourself and therefore our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Ultimate, ultimate satisfaction has to be found in you, yourself, God. Everything we see here on earth is only a, a shadow or a picture, ultimately, of you, God. And therefore, it's not until we find you that we ultimately find true satisfaction, true rest, true joy. So our quest for beauty, for things like beauty, truth, and goodness, will only be fulfilled, will only come to an end when we find these things in God himself. But the church should reflect that beauty of God, that truth of God, and that goodness of God. And these things should go together. In other words, beauty the beauty that we want to create as a church or show as a church should be informed by God's truth and God's goodness. The goodness of God that we want to show to each other and to the world should be done in a truthful and beautiful way. And we should present God's truth in a beautiful and good way rather than just slapping it down on a plate and saying, here you go. We want to make it beautiful, palatable for people to appreciate. And there's been times in history, if you know history and look back uh, through history, where one or another aspect of these has been particularly strong or visible. We think about, for example, I think the art of the Renaissance period. Great church art, religious art. You, you might not have it hanging on your wall at home, maybe a Rubens or a Rembrandt, but I think you'd agree that these are masterful works of art where, we, where the, the, the painter, the creator, sought to glorify God through a great work of beauty. Or you might think about the church music. Again, probably maybe you don't play this on your CD player of uh, Johann Sebastian Bach. But you will remember that Bach is the one who wrote on top of every page, Soli Deo Gloria, to God the glory alone. Everything that he was doing, the church and religious music he was creating, designed to, to, to be beautiful and to give God the glory. But if I look around the global church today, not just our church fellowship, probably I think the emphasis at the moment, I'd say, is on goodness. Not so much at the moment on truth or beauty. That's just my subjective um, um, how I see things, that we're, we're emphasizing a lot on being good, showing the goodness of God, but we don't have a huge emphasis at the moment on truth or beauty. But the Psalms show us, I mean, let's just be honest. If, if we had a real emphasis on beauty, this probably wouldn't look like this. Let's just be honest. Right? Criticism starts at home. But the Psalms here show us that there is a place for beauty in our Christian faith. And it doesn't have to compromise on truth. There is a place. Not all of the Bible is mere history or mere law or mere letter, epistle, New Testament epistle. There is the beautiful book of Psalms which shows us art and beauty in lyric and song. And Psalms are spiritual songs which are designed to convey, to transport, to communicate truth beautifully. And if you looked at the footnotes in your Bible on this Psalm 145 that we're looking at now, uh, you might see uh, that it says that this Psalm is an acrostic poem, the verses of which begin with successive letters of the Hebrew alphabet, which means in Hebrew, each line, so the first line begins with an aleph, and the second line begins with a bet, and the third line begins with a Gimel, and then it goes a Dalet, all the way through. It's been made by the psalmist to reflect the order and the beauty of the Hebrew alphabet. So this is not merely psalmist writing down bits of truth which came into his mind in any old order, but creating a beautiful composition in order to beautifully present um, truth, the truth about God. And we should strive. So this is the first point for this evening. We as Christians and as churches should strive for great beauty. The Psalms show us it's godly and it's right to do so. It's godly and it's right to do so. When we, if we look back at our past 
This is our inheritance as Christians. If we walk into the great cathedrals of Europe or look at the great um, pieces of art from the high Middle Ages or the great pieces of music that were written where the very best was given for God, for his worship, for his, his house, his building, his church, his people, we should see that this is who we are as Christians. We're not Christ, we're, as Christians, we're not people who just have a near enough is good enough, it'll do attitude towards beauty. Because, ultimately, not because we look in the past and we think, oh gee, they built cathedrals, we have to build something big too. But rather, because we see that our God, our God is ultimately the source of all true beauty and goodness and truth. He is beautiful. Another truth that we learn from the Psalms where David says that he loves to worship the Lord in the beauty of his holiness or in the the beauty of the Lord, to worship the beauty of the Lord in the temple, the temple of the Lord. So we should strive for great beauty. Um, The temple of God in the Old Testament is an example where no expense was spared by King Solomon to make this temple beautiful. We should look for that in uh, the beauty of nature. So sunsets are good. Beaches are good. That's God's canvas that he's given us to inspire us, to show us his heart. He didn't have to make, he didn't have to, to put all those stars in the heavens to give us a, a, a huge expanse of universe filled with galaxies and stars and whatnot. They're of no practical use in one sense to us. I mean, fewer stars would have done the job. But God did it anyway to show his nature, his infinite goodness and his design and his eye for beauty as he did with the world. I mean, we could think about it. We could be reductionistic. One, one brand of flower would be enough. It would be okay if every flower was just a little yellow daisy cup. Why do we need roses and violets and tulips, for example? We should strive for beauty in literature and in music, and together those go together in the beauty of Christian worship and Christian song. We should strive um, for great beauty in art, and we should strive for great beauty uh, in the human, in presenting the human form. God has created us in his image. We are the image of God together, male and female. Not just the male, not just the female, but together. And we see that in art as well. People go to Florence to see Michelangelo's David because they recognize that it's a great sculpture exemplifying the human form. And we should do that. The beauty of the human form, both male and female. Not in a sleazy or pornographic manner, but in a way that shows us forth as creatures created in the image of God. And that's our inheritance as Christians. We see that so clearly in the Psalms, that God has an eye and a heart for beauty. So my invitation to you is, let's excel. I think, in all honesty, and without wanting to be too critical, we live in a, in a time where much of what happens in the Christian churches is copying the world. We look at their music, their art, and we kind of try and do as best we can in their vein. But I long for a time when we get back to where the Christian church sets, uh, the, the, sets the scene. That the world sees what we create and thinks, wow, that is truly awesome. That is truly beautiful and desires to, to imitate us. So second point tonight. So I just want to invite you guys. Uh, sorry, just closing off the first point now. Just go all for it in terms of developing Christian art and beauty. It's, uh, hopefully that's a calling that God has placed on a number of people's lives here this evening. Then the second thing that we see from the Psalms is um, the didactic use of beauty. Didactic is just a, a word meaning teaching or that they teach us things. And this is just such an important, important point that I feel is not often mentioned, which is why I want to talk about it with you tonight because we have um, a chance to do that here with the Psalms. So what we're saying is that Psalm 145 is like, along with all the other Psalms, it's not just a beautiful song. It's not just a, a praise that we can join in with and think, yeah, that's a beautiful song. Or look at the acrostic, look at the different letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Wow, what a work of art. But this is actually teaching us things. Teaching us things about, uh, about truth, about doctrine, about God. And so we learn from the Psalms that these things, like truth, what is true, what is good, what is right, and doctrine, what we believe as Christians about God and ourselves, about Jesus Christ, about his Holy Spirit, these things don't have to be presented only in a dry text. 
could get out a systematic theology and slam it down on the table. There's a dry text for you that will teach us everything that we believe. And there is a place for systematic theologies. Absolutely. But the truth doesn't have to be presented in that way. It doesn't only have to be presented in the form of a New Testament letter to the Romans setting forth, or the the Corinthians setting forth God's truth. Rather, truth can be communicated beautifully through songs. And God commands his people, it's interesting, to remember and transport key truths by the use of songs. By the use of songs, by the use of psalms. We see that right um, at the beginning of the Bible when Israel is about to cross the Jordan into the promised land. You remember that God takes Moses aside and he gives Moses a song. And he says, I want you to teach this song to the Israelites so that they don't forget me. So that they don't forget the covenant, so they don't forget the law. We just had the whole book of Deuteronomy. It's full of law. And indeed the people were instructed to know the law, to meditate on the law. But God said, teach them this song so that they don't forget it. So they don't forget me. And this is because beauty is attractive to us. As we said at the start, we're attracted to truth, to beauty, to goodness. And music particularly powerfully affects us. I think if you remember back to your childhood, you'll, you'll know that you remember your, the children's nursery rhymes that you heard or the songs you heard. They'll still be in your mind. And when you have children yourself, like I did a few years ago, you suddenly find it all coming back to you. As you begin to, to teach these nursery rhymes or sing these songs to your own children, they've stuck in your mind because they were communicated to you in the form of a song, in the form of art, if you will. I don't think many of you will remember back to the time when you were four years old what your mother said to you when she sat you down in the kitchen. But you will remember the songs your mother sang over your bed when you fell asleep at night. So this is, a, this is a really strong power that music, that art, that poetry has over us. It teaches us things. We don't easily or quickly forget what we learn in song or what we learn in poetry. And this, this can be a good thing and a bad thing. We can use this awesome power for good, for our own good, or for our own, to our own harm. And so that's what we want to learn from the Psalms. We want to be focusing on, in our lives as a church and as Christians, using worship, music, and Psalms and texts that are true, that are right, that are good, that are centered on glorifying God. And they will shape us to be a true people of faith. But where we fill our minds with songs, whether it be in the church, poor songs, or outside, if we listen to uh, the radio, and, and there's room for the radio. But if we, if we fill our minds with songs that are individualistic, self-centered, or full of poor teaching or poor theology, they will shape us badly. So don't cut yourself away from the, the awesome power to, to, to work truth in your own heart through the power of the Holy Spirit, we believe, by participating in things like the Psalms as they're lived out and acted out in our church churches today through sung worship and i'm sure if anyone was here this morning uh, you probably won't remember anything that was said in the sermon but you probably will remember the songs that we sang that's not to say that the sermon was had no point that sermon that 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 we do trust that the holy spirit applies that truth but we just want to see for ourselves that that power that music has so if music and and poetry have this power as the, the psalms show us that they do They've survived throughout thousands of years and have shaped God's people for that time. Then they want to be um, an invitation to us to pursue beauty and truth together. And, And the Psalms really show us that God's will and God's blessing lie here in this use of beauty and truth and goodness together. So take those two points as an introduction on the Psalms. Um, Pursue beauty. And uh, be aware of the, the, the great teaching power that, that beautiful music, together with beautiful texts, can have. So we're going to look um, fairly briefly now at Psalm 145, because it is a psalm. And that's what I prayed at the beginning. It really deserves to be sung and, and lived out, as opposed to 
clinically analyzed. But we want to have a quick look at what this psalm can, can show us, can teach us uh, about, about being lived out, about being sung and spoken. So as I said last week, we had a personal psalm. Psalm 23, a psalm of David, describing his own walk with the Lord. Here again in Psalm 145, we have a psalm of David, but it's a psalm of praise which relates first David's personal relationship to the Lord, to God, and then how, how he fits in to, uh, with God himself and then as part of the covenant community, the people of God, the people of faith. So let's look at it now briefly. The psalm starts... I will exalt you, my God, the King, David speaking. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. So David is speaking here about himself. I will do this. I will do this. And he's talking here about a a lifestyle of praise, continual, daily, repetitive praise. But interestingly here, praise without end. I will extol your name forever and ever. And ever. We should note here what God, what David says about God. He says, "I mean, who is he exalting? Who is he praising? He's praising God, the King." David understands who it is whom he is praising, whom he is exalting. He understands who it is, God, the King. And this, this is so important for us, especially if we maybe you're a person who has trouble with praise and worship or worship of the Lord because you often find that your mind drifts, maybe. I'm not sure. Not everyone goes like that. But David, um, I want to say, overcomes this by knowing who it is that he's praising. If we don't know who it is whom we're praising, then we cannot easily bring forth praise. And true praise, therefore, begins with an understanding of who God is. True praise begins with an understanding of who God is. We need to understand that God is the supreme being, the supreme good. And that just takes so much explaining, that it's most just and right and holy and good and lovely and desirous, good to praise him. It's not that we only want to praise him when we're in a service. We think, okay, now it's time to praise. But really, David is saying here, um, I will praise you every day, forever and ever. That it's an attitude. Because David knows who it is he's praising, therefore the desires of his heart have changed so that he desires, he wants to praise all the time. So the first thing is we have to understand who God is. If we want our, our worship time, our life to reflect this heart of David, this heart of worship, we have to focus on who God is. Now, I said before that God is the supreme good, and this takes great um, meditation, I want to say, um, reading of the scripture, talking with those in the faith to, to continually come to a greater understanding of who God is. We have to get away from who God, from who we think in our natural fallen nature God is, or from who God is presented us presented to us as being by the culture, a rather distant, um, either angry man, old man often, or else as a, as, a, as a kind of distant old man who's kind of just faffing about, doesn't really know what he's doing, just kind of mixing up jars in some kind of heavenly laboratory. Those are, those are two of the cliched pictures that we get about who God is. But we have to understand that God is the supreme being. That we're all created beings. That if, that if God's sustaining power were to, to cease, that we would instantly snap out of existence. There's nothing in me that's keeping me alive, being, existing. But God is being itself. He can never not be. He has always been. He has within himself the power of being. He is the source of all good things. All the things that we like uh, or that we appreciate or that we're drawn to. Things that we spoke about before. Goodness, beauty, truth, love. God possesses these to an infinite, um, to an infinite um, level. He is what it. He, he is the source of those things. Those things come ultimately from Him, from nowhere else. They come from Him. So, if we see a, um, if you see a, uh, a sunset, it's not 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 on social media, but you're actually standing there. Let's put you on a beach as well. Let's put you on a beach. And you're watching a sunset and now the waves are coming in so you can feel that beautiful, soft, fresh salt water washing over your feet as, you, as your feet sink into that nice cold sand. Just cold enough to be refreshing without freezing your feet. And you're looking at this sunset and you're standing next to someone. 
most of us will have the urge to say to that person, especially if they're on their phone, posting it to social media, like, hey, look at this. We want to praise that because it's beautiful. We see the sunset because it's beautiful and we, we think we, something in us wants to, sh- wants to praise that, wants to share that. Look at this. Have you seen this beautiful sunset? I mean, I do that. You know, I think you do that too. When you see something beautiful, we want to call other people over so they can share it with you, so they can enjoy it with you. But if we realize that God himself is the source of all of beauty and all of goodness, then I think that should help us to understand worship more. That we, that we, it's not like, oh, I have to worship now. Oh, I, have to, oh, I have to tell people the sunset's beautiful. Oh, boring. No one reacts like that to a sunset because we see in it intrinsic beauty. And that's what David is saying here, that he has come to the position where he sees in God, perhaps to a degree that is almost unrivaled in the scriptures, and we see that because of the beautiful psalms that David wrote, that he sees God as beauty. So for David, when he sees God, it's like us seeing a sunset. He can do nothing else but to say, look how beautiful God is. Look how wonderful God is. I can do nothing else but praise. If you go out on a hot day like that and you go around the corner and you get a a beautiful Italian ice cream and you're licking that ice cream and you're like, you want to tell people how good it is because it tastes good, because it's refreshing, because it's cold. That's what David is. He's tasted and seen that God is good, that God is ultimately beautiful, ultimately good, ultimately holy, ultimately lovely. The Bible continually presents God not as distant, not as distant and somehow unapproachable in in that sense, but as rather as something so powerful in beauty and holiness that in that sense he's unapproachable. We can't, it, it, it sort of destroys all our senses. We can take in a sunset that God's created. We can listen to a symphony that his spirit might have inspired. But to see his glory is too much for us. But that's where David is. Because he's seen how, gloriful, how, how um, glorious God is, he, must, he can do nothing but praise. He can do nothing but praise God. So that's true praise begins with an understanding of who God is, and we need to work hard to get to this understanding. This is so crucial to the Christian life, to think of God rightly. If you're thinking of God wrongly, then you're thinking about ultimate reality wrongly. Everything's wrong right from the start. You need to think about God rightly. You need to have a true understanding of who God is. But notice that this is a a process. I will extol your name forever and ever. Let me just let you in on a secret here. This is never going to end. This is never going to end. That's what David really means here by ever and ever. He will really praise God forever and ever. Because God is infinite, because he is unbounded, we will never reach the end of comprehending him, understanding him, seeing and getting kind of to the end and saying, okay, you know, maybe after three million years in eternity in uh, heaven, or in, sorry, I should say in the, the new heavens, the new earth, that we kind of get, get to the end and say, okay, that was God. I'm done. I've, I, I got it. I understood it. I'm finished. We will never get to that point because God himself is infinite and eternal. There will always be more of God to discover, always more of God in which to dwell deeper. There will be, it will be almost like, and I've used this illustration before here at Calvary, that you're on a, uh, a walking tour through the Alps. All right? And you start out and you're like, wow, what a view. Quick, get the camera. We've got to take a view of this one, this glacier, this mountain, this peak. And then an hour later, you're like, well, you, 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 know, you turn a few corners and you're like, wow, even more mountains, even more beautiful. And he just keeps going like that. There will be always more new vistas of God's beauty and God's glory forever and ever because we will never reach the end of his glory because he is infinite, he is unbounded. And we can't really get our minds around that now. As Paul writes in Corinthians, we see through, yep, in Corinthians, we see at the moment through a glass darkly. But then we will see him face to face. So we will fully understand just how infinite and glorious God is when he returns for us. But even when we see him in that glory, when we see him face to face, that doesn't mean that we'll get to the end of comprehending him. We will never get to the end 
of comprehending God. And as, I, as I've said before, this is actually a great thing if you're worried about being bored in eternity. You're not going to be bored. Because you will spend an eternity ever more deeply um, admiring, worshipping, appreciating uh, endless, supreme, good, beauty and truth in God himself. Everything that your heart ultimately longs for deep down, you will have in all eternity. So true praise begins with an understanding of who God is and I just want to encourage you, get that right. Work out that God is not selfish. He's not self-centered. He's not some kind of needy person. He's like, oh, come on, praise me, praise me, please. I need to hear it again from you guys. Am I a good God? Please. That is not who God is. God ultimately wants us to praise him because he knows, as I said before with the, the quote from Augustine, that it's in praising him, in glorifying him, that we are ultimately brought to our full satisfaction and our full joy. And you need to get that right. Because then it will spill out of you as you talk about it with other people. If you think of God as needy and self-centered and kind of angry and kind of distant, that's just not going to work out for you in terms of personal evangelism. You're not going to win anyone to that. No one wants to be a part of that. People will be a part by the help of the Spirit of, um, of the promise that we can give to them of um, ultimate satisfaction in uh, uncovering the truth and the beauty of the infinite God. Let's just um, continue. And we're uh, in verse 3. I've taught, titled this section, The Task of the Covenant Community. So, so David has, has, has told us, or he's actually speaking this psalm, of course, to God, but as we as readers, we see, okay, we see David's personal, his individual heart. And now he identifies himself as part of a something greater. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. One generation commends your works to another. They tell of your mighty acts. They speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty. And I will meditate on your wonderful works. They tell of the power of your awesome works. And I will proclaim your great deeds. They celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. They being um, the, gener- the generations of God's covenant community, God's family of faith. So David now shows his position in relation to God. He's just one of many. His individual heart is just one of many individual hearts joined together in the people of God. So his praising is part of the call to all the community of God to be praising. So that means it affects us too. As we read this psalm here, we're not just reading about David, a particularly spiritual man who was able to write these psalms. And hmm, Interesting. Rather, we are brought into the psalm by these verses because we find ourselves as another chain in the link of these generations that David references today. It's because of this praising from one generation to another that we can even sit here today as this generation. So Christian faith, we should um, see, is something much bigger than ourselves. Such an important lesson for us to learn. Christian faith is something much bigger than your individual experience. You're part of something big and bold and powerful that is moving in mysterious ways through the centuries, uh, through the nations of this world. And that's something that can be, it can be so comforting and can be so um, challenging and, and, and something so exhilarating. It's, uh, one, one of the ways we, this, um, we can have this experience is if we're, for a time in our own lives, we're really concerned with what God's doing in our own lives maybe, or in the place that we're at, that, that we, kind of, we, we get really bogged down on it. Not necessarily in a bad way, we're thinking about maybe I as a pastor, think about this church or whatever. You might be thinking about God's calling on your life now or things that you're experiencing with God in your life. And then suddenly someone will fly in from another city or another country on earth, maybe from Colombia, let's say. I talked to a guy from Colombia this morning. And then just in conversation, he'll just start telling you or she'll just start telling you about something that God's been doing over there. And you're suddenly, you're suddenly awoken again to this, to this truth. That while you've been so concerned with, with what's going on maybe in your own life or here, or even with one particular part of the world, maybe you've just got to focus on um, one nation or whatever where you're, uh, you're, you're involved in prayer or ministry and you see, wow, God's doing something all over the world, all through history. Or you pick up a book and look at the church history and you see, wow, 
God was active all through history. So this, this section is a great um, section which talks about the communion of saints that we say as Christians we believe in. We believe in the communion of saints. And it's something that we enjoy as members of Christ's church, not just horizontally. It's not just that we have communion here because we're all here together in Christ's name, but it's also through history, backwards and forwards. We have communion with those who've gone before us and, that's important for us, with those who will come after us. So hold that thought for a moment because David speaks about these things, one generation speaking to another naturally. He doesn't command us to do anything, but he speaks of a process he's seen and experienced and which should and shall continue. He looks back in his own people and he sees the generations from Joshua, from Moses and Joshua down through the judges to David. It's been one generation speaking to another. And this is both within and without. So it's one generation of God's people speaking to the next generation, teaching them about who God is and what, his, what has God has done. And it's one generation speaking to another, the broader generation of the world around us, teaching or inviting people into that community. That's the way that it's been ordained by God. So that means for us, we're it right now. We're the generation. If all the Christians suddenly um, died tomorrow, there would be no generation to pass on this message into the future. Right? There's no, it's not like we just live our lives and do our thing and then supernaturally on a side track, God's just kind of delivering messages or Bibles into different places in history. But rather he's appointed that we are now the generation who should be praising him extolling him for his mighty works and telling of his mighty deeds. And that affects each and every one of us. We now, it's this present moment which was now and, and, and now and now. Like each now, now, moment. Where now? Even though, even though that moment was now a few seconds ago and now we're now. You're going to see what I mean. There's no one else but us. We are this generation. And so this process that David describes here is, is what he envisages through the Spirit, I would say, us doing now. We are the generation at the moment which um, it's, it, the, the, the chain is up to this link in the chain. And in one sense, we trust God, obviously, that he will build his church, but the way he builds his church is through us, and therefore it's time for us to be exalting here. Uh, and telling of his mighty deeds. And let me just draw, draw out one more point from this section, and then we'll quickly wrap up the, the psalm. This, this psalm shows us how much of our teaching, or I mean teaching in the broadest sense, teaching in the church, teaching when we teach other people in our lives about Jesus Christ, about our faith, about God, this psalm shows us how much... Um, our, our teaching should be characterized by exaltation and praise. By exaltation and praise. David is, David is saying here, um, one generation commends your works to another. They tell of your mighty acts. They speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty. So what is that saying about the way we teach? It needs to be exaltation. We can't go up to people, whether it's in the church or outside the church, and say, hey, remember that time God rescued Israel from, e from Egypt? So depressing. Such a dumb story. As if we do that. That's not what, ex that's not what exaltation is. That's not what um, speaking of the glorious splendor of your majesty is. It's not just communicating mere content, history, it's doing so in a way that ultimately is filled with joy. It's filled with joy because this is praise. We're speaking of the glorious splendor of your majesty. If we're speaking of the glorious splendor of God's majesty and we've really understood what God's majesty is, we're going to be overflowing with joy and with praise for God as we speak of these things to other people, whether it be in the church or whether it be outside the church. We want to get away from being um, kind of indifferent or mealy-mouthed, or, like, or sad, or I don't know, and realize that our teaching needs to be full of, even when we talk about difficult things, 
full of joy, glorying in the truth. It's even as we speak about all of the great things that God has done, about uh, who God is, about all the things that he does in our lives, we're showing by the way we speak about it that we find in God supreme joy and sat- satisfaction. And we're talking here about his mighty acts, specifically probably the, the exodus from Egypt, freeing his people from bondage in Egypt, and then in the New Testament, the cross, freeing his people from bondage in sin. We're speaking about the splendor of his majesty, God in his triune being, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in perfect harmony in all eternity. We're speaking about God's goodness, it says here, and, that's, and God's righteousness, the way that this God who has proved himself through his mighty deeds in the past, who is full of splendorous majesty in his being, the way he relates to us. And if we don't know of these things, if we don't know of God's mighty acts or who he is in his triune being or his, or his goodness or his righteousness, then we need to immerse ourselves in them. If you don't speak French, you need to immerse yourself in, Fran- in French. You need to go to France. Same with Arabic or Chinese. That's how you learn, and you're surrounded by it. So just kind of apply that point now. If you don't know what God has done, who God is, or the way God relates to us in goodness and righteousness, then immerse yourself in them through the scriptures, through other um, teachers and tools, but again through fellowship and prayer in the church. We need to know, we need to have knowledge of God, His being, His actions, His works, and His splendor. We need, by His Spirit, to make every effort, as Solomon says, to get wisdom and knowledge because they're so precious and they will help us be full of this joy as we communicate to the next generation. So let's just um, complete uh, the psalm now. Let's, let's read through to the end. Um, there's rather a lot left, but we've, we're almost out of time for this evening. In verse 8, these, these well-known words, the Lord is gracious and compassionate. Just think about these words as I read them. I don't think we really have to analyze them. Uh, let them work upon you as David meant them, as he wrote them down, inspired by the Holy Spirit. These are a song of praise. And as, as I read these words, let your heart respond uh, with joy as you, as you praise God for these truths. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. Amen. How are we not so thankful for that every day? The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all that he has made. Let us live in imitation of our Lord, being good to all, having compassion on all that the Lord has made. All your works praise you, Lord. Everything that the Lord has made, everything that he has done, point back to him as a good and wonderful and and glorious God. Your faithful people extol you. We'll be shown to be faithful if our lives are lived in praise of God, in, ex, in extolling God. They tell, so these faithful people who we want to be, we desire to be, they tell of the glory of your kingdom, they speak of your might, so that all people may know of your mighty acts and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. We don't have a, um, we don't have a, um, a shy message to share with the world. Uh, excuse me. But if you were looking for Jesus, I can give you maybe Jesus. We don't have that kind of, I don't, don't, want, to, don't want to interrupt you here. I don't want to take up your time. But if you're interested, no, no. We have here a, uh, the glory of God's kingdom. The, we, we speak of his glorious might. And we want all people to know of his mighty acts through Jesus. We know that Jesus' kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. That his dominion endures through all generations. So we see that in promising this kingdom, the Lord is also trustworthy, verse 13b, in all that he promises and faithful in all that he does. Hang on to that promise, no matter where you are in your life right now. The Lord is trustworthy in all he promises and faithful in all he does. He cannot let you down. If he has promised it, he will adhere to it. We can be sure that he will bring to an end the good work he has begun in us. That is his promise. The Lord upholds all who fall and lifts up all who are bowed down. So we know this is the kind of God. He doesn't let us go when we get into difficulty. He doesn't let us go when we get into hard times. He upholds us and he lifts us up. The eyes of all the world, we see this God is our creator. They look to him and he gives them food at the proper time. 
He opens his hand and he satisfies the desire of every living thing. And I hope that we take that verse not only as a reference to food and being satisfied and no longer hungry, but realizing that ultimately all our desires are satisfied in him. The Lord is righteous in all his ways. We can bank on him. We can reckon with him that he'll do the right thing. He's not going to go back on what he said before. He's faithful in all he does. What he's told us he will do. Here the Lord is near in spite of his unimaginable glory and infinite, um, infinite being. He is near to all of us who call on him, to call on him in truth. The Lord is near to you wherever you are in your life this evening. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. Fear meaning hear a healthy reverence and awe for this God. He hears their cries and saves them. The Lord watches over all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. The Lord is righteous. He will do good. He will make sure that justice prevails. And David finishes up here by saying, my mouth will speak in praise of the Lord. I hope that that's going to be each of our um, resolution this evening after having hearing this psalm. Yes, my mouth will speak in praise of the Lord. And not only me, but I want to extend that to all of creation. Let every creature praise his holy name forever and ever. I invite Yanis uh, to come back up, the worship team to come back up. So take away from this psalm the fact that God says yes to beauty. He says yes to beauty and art and pursue it. It's something that's God, good, godly and righteousness, righteous sorry, and needs no excuse. Realize that God uses these kind of psalms to teach us mighty truth about himself. And I think if we want to take one thing away from the psalm, we want to be exalting God, having joy in God, satisfaction in God, love for God overflowing in us as we teach others, whether it be in the church or outside the church, about God. Let's, let's be exalting as we teach others about this wonderful, mighty God in whom we believe.